Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's episode is part two of the murder of Egypt Covington. Last week, you got the bare bones of the case, and this week, we're going to dive into the two days before she was killed, the night of the murder, when and how she was found, and the crime scene. If you thought you were already invested in this case, what you're about to learn is going to burn one monumental fire under your ass, so hold on to your britches. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. We know that Egypt was found on June 23rd of 2017, but let's rewind back to the 21st. On the evening of the 21st, Egypt had a pairing event for work. Now, it was technically for Rave, but she had planned this entire soiree. She paired each individual beer with each specific menu item, which would ultimately showcase the quality of products they had to offer and the pure talent that she had when it came to her job. It was her event, and rightfully so, she was really proud of herself. It was six a seat and she really wanted her dad and stepmom Chuck and Kristen to see what she had accomplished so she bought them both tickets to attend but when the time came everyone showed up except Chuck and Kristen Egypt was devastated she wasn't rolling in money but had gladly shelled out the $120 for their tickets because this meant something to her but they were a no-show Heartbroken and frustrated, she called a family member crying, and the family member, knowing how tight Egypt's funds were, offered to do what little she could to ease at least a little of the stress from the situation, and offered to give her $120 to, at the very least, cover her financial loss. More than a few people at the event noticed Egypt was upset and saw her talking to Curtis about it. More than a few people thought Egypt was upset with Curtis, which started a whirlwind of rumors, but it very well could have been that she was upset with her father and Kristen. We honestly may never know. After the event, Curtis and Egypt continued their celebration and partied into the wee hours of the morning and headed back to Curtis's apartment probably around 3 a.m. or so. I say this because Curtis told Lindsay and Dwayne, Egypt's brother and his fiance, that him and Egypt had only gotten three hours of sleep that night. When the two spent the night with one another, it was usually at Curtis's apartment. Egypt's place was less of a home and more of a house. Egypt was always put together from her hair and makeup to her outfits and accessories, but her home didn't reflect her. Prior to settling down and deciding to leave the party life behind and start this new chapter, she didn't spend her money the way she should have, and I'm sure we've all been there. So she was working on paying off debts and a fancy apartment and nice furniture just weren't her priority. 
She had everything she needed, a roof over her head, a place to relax, a place to eat, and a place to sleep. This wasn't going to be her forever home, but for now it worked, and it was only costing her $300 a month, which was allowing her to catch up on a lot of her debt. Now, I should mention that it's been rumored that Egypt didn't feel totally safe at her house. It was a rancher split into two apartments. She lived on the left side, and her neighbors, Megan and Steve, lived on the right side. Megan was actually the daughter of the man who owned the entire property. To get into the house, you didn't need anything. The front door was always open. When you got through the front door, you could turn to the left or right to see either Egypt's apartment door or her neighbor's apartment door, which were both locked by security code entries. That's not to say that Egypt wasn't friends with her neighbors because they were good friends. They hung out frequently, went to events together, and Egypt was even buying one of the French bulldog puppies that they had just bred. All that aside, though, it's been said that there was high traffic into the neighbor's apartment that at times made her feel uneasy. That's reportedly one of the reasons Curtis was going to move in with Egypt, so that she felt safer when she was home, and the plan was that they'd stay there for six months, pull their money, and then buy a house. But as we know, that never happened. So back to the morning of the 22nd. After waking up at Curtis's apartment, she went to work like any normal day, went to different restaurants and bars in the area since she was, of course, a beer and wine rep. She talked to people about Kenny being upset that Curtis was moving in, and we'll talk more about that later, and had her normal chit-chat with the employees of each establishment because that's what Egypt did. She built relationships, and frankly, they all adored her. After work, she headed home to get ready for yoga. She was planning on going to both of the classes that Starseed was having that night. She texted her friend Lenny, who worked at the yoga studio as a receptionist, and asked if she was going to be going to one or both of them. Egypt wound up attending the 6.15 to 7.15 class on her own. I mean, there were other people there, but Lenny didn't join her until the 7.30 to 8.30 class. Your girl loved yoga. Lenny made a Facebook post about that class they attended together a year after Egypt had been killed, so let me read you what she said. You were radiant. Your hair pulled back so I could see how blissful and radiant you looked. The studio had random mirrors on the opposite side of the room that night, so I got to see you the entire practice. These images forever stuck in my memory. Your practice, your soul, your light. Lenny went on to say that Egypt actually invited her over to her house that night after yoga, but Lenny declined, saying that she was tired and lazy. So instead, Lenny says Egypt went home without her to clean her house for Curtis before he moved in. But we know that wasn't for a couple weeks, and like we said earlier, her house wasn't her home, and her way of living wasn't a secret from him. He knew what it looked like. It was simple. She had an old hand-me-down love seat near the back door. Facing the wall beside the back door was an old hand-me-down bench with three wicker baskets on top. Against the far right wall was an old card table pulled out to put her TV on and a mini fridge in the living room beside that red love seat. It was simple, nothing fancy, and it wasn't going to change for Curtis. I mean, Egypt's home, as is, was why they decided to pull their money there and not at his $1,400 a month apartment. It was cheap and it had the necessities, and they allegedly had bigger plans. So Lenny and Egypt leave the yoga parking lot around 9 p.m. on the 22nd. Egypt headed home, Lenny headed back to her trailer, and Curtis stayed in alone at his apartment watching the NBA draft, saying he was too tired from the night before to do anything else. Mapping it out, Egypt would have gotten back to her house around 9.20 that night. Curtis, despite being tired, tells Lindsay and Duane that he ordered Chinese from Pearl River Restaurant at around 9 p.m. and instead of having it delivered, drove there to pick it up. 
Pearl River Restaurant is just a five-minute drive from his apartment at the Harbor Club and just an 11-minute drive from Egypt's house. He tells Lindsay and Duane that he got home and devoured his food and then went to bed around 11 p.m. He tells Lindsay and Duane that he told Egypt goodnight, to which she responded, goodnight, sweet love. Unfortunately for him, that conflicts with a statement he gave to True Crime Daily, where he says that she texted him nighty-night. This was reportedly the last communication with a woman he was planning on moving in with, but can't seem to remember what exactly it consisted of. This text was sent at 10.03 p.m., meaning Curtis ordered Chinese, picked it up, brought it back home, ate it, and then went to bed within one hour and three minutes. The drive to and from the Chinese place would take a minimum of 10 minutes, which leaves him 53 minutes to eat and go to bed. It's been said over and over again that Egypt posted something on her Snapchat exactly one hour after she texted Curtis nighty night or goodnight sweet love at 10.03 p.m. From what we've heard, the snap was something about her getting ready to start watching her favorite movie, but it was late and Egypt had also only gotten three hours of sleep the night before, which means that she would have been committing to stay up until roughly 1 a.m. the next morning and then fully expecting to go to work and have a normal Friday. The problem is, no one seems to have a screenshot of this Snapchat. No one can tell us whether or not her physical body or physical voice was on this post, or if it was just a photo of her TV with a little blurb about watching a movie. We know Curtis texted Egypt that morning and that she never responded. He says he knew something wasn't right around 10 a.m., but he just kept calling her. He calls her all throughout the day and hears nothing, no return calls, and no texts back. He gets off work around 4.30 and drives to Wayne County to pick up his daughter for what he calls a late Father's Day dinner. He takes her back to his apartment in Belleville so he can change his clothes. He lived just a little over three miles from Egypt's house. Curtis and his daughter then go to a Mexican restaurant in Canton where he says they only stay for about 15 minutes. Then he takes her back to her place and says he heads straight to Egypt's house from there. That whole trip, plus the 15 minutes to eat mapped out, would have been 1 hour and 25 minutes, putting the time he dropped his daughter off at around 5.55 p.m. If you tack on 10 minutes to change his clothes, it puts it at around 6.05 p.m. He says he headed straight to Egypt's house after this and even called her on the way. Obviously, she didn't answer. But if this is the case, he should have gotten to Egypt's house somewhere between 6.15 and 6.25 p.m., but he didn't call 911 until 7.16 p.m. He tells True Crime Daily that when he pulled onto her street and saw her car in the driveway, his stomach sank, which seemed odd, as if her car not being there would have been a relief. I mean, you haven't talked to her all day, her car's in her driveway, okay, now you're going to be able to talk to her and see what's going on, but no, her car being in the driveway made his stomach sink. He says he walked into the main entrance of the house and turned to the right to see Egypt's door open a little bit. He told True Crime Daily he only took two steps into the house before yelling out her name. It's when Egypt's dog Ruby comes up to him and he follows her that he says he sees Egypt dead on the floor and lying in what he refers to as the fetal position. Curtis tells True Crime Daily that he ran outside around 7.15 to call 911, but feels like he blacked out after that. But technology is forever, and I got a copy of the 911 call, so I'm going to go over a few key points during the recording. 
He dials 911 and they answer and Curtis tells the operator, I just showed up at my girlfriend's house. We're at 45576 Higgins and then corrects himself and says Bemis, neither of which are Egypt's address or even his address. Egypt's address is 45576 Hull Road. He says, I walked inside. She's there tied up. She's dead. There's blood on her head. There's flies. She's dead. They ask him to confirm the Bemis address, and he does, and the operator asks if he's sure she's dead, and he says, yeah, she's tied up, there's flies, oh my god. He talks about how she lives at a duplex, and that he tried knocking on the neighbor's door, and how they're not there. Yes, he says he walked out of her apartment and started knocking on the neighbor's door, specifically mentioning Steve and Megan. For what? Who fucking knows? They definitely weren't there. Egypt had been watching their dogs, including a litter of French bulldog puppies. But they also definitely weren't anyone you'd call for help in a murder situation. It's not like they were EMTs or anything. I'd also like to point out that Steve and Megan were definitely not there. That's not a question. They were at an event called Electric Forest, and I tracked down photos of at least Megan physically at the actual event. During the 911 call, Curtis is a bit panicked, a little out of breath, but he's not hysterical. But those moments do come when he's somewhat put on hold for brief periods of time where the operator does his thing. At other times, he's extremely calm. Now, everyone handles these situations differently, but it's all worth mentioning. At one point when it got quiet, he started repeating, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my fucking god, and crying, but calmed down when the operator got back on and asked him if he was still there. Next, the operator asked about the last time he saw Egypt, and Curtis said, I, oh Jesus, um, yeah, last time I talked to him was 10 o'clock yesterday. I, uh, threw a text, uh, the day before. The day before was yesterday, which the operator catches and asks 10 o'clock last night, which Curtis responds with, yeah, that's the last time I heard from her. Which I'm just going to point out wasn't the question. They asked when he had last seen her, not heard from her, but again, stressful situation. The operator asks if Egypt lived there alone, and he tells them about how the house is a duplex and tells the operator that the neighbors were supposedly Megan and Steve. They're a couple. Egypt was good friends with supposedly Megan and Steve, and Curtis had mentioned them both by name earlier in the call when he said they knocked on their door. He starts talking freely and says that her door was cracked open four or five inches, which is specific as fuck. The operator then tells him to go outside and not to touch anything, to which Curtis tells him that the only thing he touched was the door to go inside, which means he never ran up to Egypt. He never checked to see if she was breathing or cold, never gave her any kind of CPR, but was close enough to see that there were flies on her. Now, I've seen the crime scene photos and the autopsy photos, and while there were flies, there weren't a ton. And where the flies had laid their larvae was on the underside of her neck, the side facing the carpet, not anywhere that could have been seen just looking at her from a distance or, frankly, from the position she was in. But sure, there were other flies flying around. Then he tells the operator that he's already outside. He was outside of Egypt's house, sitting in his truck, which was parked in her driveway, when he called 911. He told Lindsay and Dwayne that he'd left his phone out there. There's more silence on the dispatcher's side, and this is when Curtis repeats, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, over and over again. The dispatcher tells him that an officer should be there any minute and tells Curtis to look out for them to make sure that they find him. There's a little more silence until Curtis, clear as day and unprompted, corrects the incorrect address that he had given them, saying, Hull Road, sorry, Hull Road, 45576 Hull Road, and then does the whole oh my god, oh my god, oh my fucking god thing. 
The operator circles back to the last time he texted her, and Curtis says that he'd called her work phone and her cell phone 30 times that day. 30. He then explains to the operator that he doesn't have social media, so he texted his friend to see if Egypt had been posting on social media because he was worried that maybe she was mad at him. And that's when he says his friend told him that her last post had been at 11 p.m., but that he doesn't know what it was. That's the 11.03 p.m. Snapchat that no one seems to be able to find a copy of. Police eventually show up once they get the right address, and they're not the only ones who show up. Egypt's friend Linny shows up at the scene, and Curtis has no clue how she even found out about what was going on. He certainly didn't call her. It turns out that Gloria, the mother of Egypt's neighbors, who had gotten a call from the next-door neighbors, called Linny and told her what was going on. So she shows up on the scene and starts asking the police if this is real, and they tell her that it is. Linny then takes it upon herself to find Egypt's sister Beth on Facebook, then uses Facebook Messenger to call her over and over again, which she doesn't answer. Beth tries to call Egypt, probably wondering why her friend keeps trying to call her on Facebook Messenger, assuming it was probably about her. So when Egypt doesn't pick up, Beth uses Facebook Messenger to call Linny back, and Linny tells Egypt's sister that she's at Egypt's house and Egypt is dead. When an officer saw that she was on the phone, he got upset because they'd yet to be able to formally inform her family. Linny's Facebook Messenger call to Beth is how they found out. The officer told Linny that she needed to leave, and she did. The police didn't even inform Egypt's own mother. Chuck, Egypt's dad, finally called Tina, her mother, while she was at work at 11 p.m. He told her to sit down that her daughter had been killed. It would be another three days before Tina learned exactly how her daughter had been murdered. The investigation, or lack thereof, started then. The police interview the neighbors that live to the left of Egypt's house, and their older kids say that the previous night, they heard what they thought was either a gunshot or a car backfiring coming from the direction of Egypt's house at exactly 9.56 p.m. It was so startling that they actually looked at the clock just in case. Now, they also told officers that they saw Curtis and the police at Egypt's house like three hours prior to 911 actually being called, so that was obviously very off, but saying they heard what might have been a gunshot on the night their next door neighbor was shot and killed is something worth looking into regardless. So keep that in your memory bank. Police walk into the house and the smell of decomposition is present. This is the first we really hear that detail. It's not something Curtis mentioned in his 911 call. They see Egypt lying on the floor, and let me kind of describe the scene for you. She's not in the fetal position like Curtis said in his True Crime Daily interview. Instead, it's almost like she fell over to the left while sitting. Her green yoga mat is tangled beneath her. Her head was resting on the floor with the right side of her head where her entrance wound was, facing the ceiling, and there was quite a bit of blood central to the head area. Media reports had said that Egypt had been shot in the back of the head, but she had actually been shot on the right side of her head, just behind and above her ear. Most of the blood still on her body had run down the top of her head and through her hair. There was also a smaller trail of blood that went over her eyes and a smaller trail that went over her mouth. When considering gravity, her head would have had to have been facing downward when she was shot for all the blood to flow through her hair and onto the carpet, and for none of it to have dripped down her neck or onto her arms or back. 
This gunshot wound, which had no exit wound, would have been instantly fatal, which means her blood would no longer be pumping, and blood wouldn't gush from the wound if it were simply facing the ceiling. In fact, most of it pulled inside of her skull and eye sockets. Some came out of her ears, some came out of her nose, and it looks like some may have also come out of her mouth. I know this is graphic, but it's important to her case. The amount of blood on the carpet beneath her was pretty extensive, but her gunshot wound was facing up towards the ceiling, not onto the carpet, which made me wonder if maybe her body had been moved. Police untied the Christmas lights that were binding her arms behind her back, and her arms fell to her side. Generally, bindings are kept intact for court purposes, but this scene work is what it is. Once they free her from the Christmas lights, they roll her over to the other side. When they do this, blood begins to drain from her gunshot wound onto the already large pool on the carpet. The two impressions in the blood that had once been screaming out for someone to notice them are now gone. They're completely covered up by the new blood on the scene. Betty Broderick thought she had the perfect life and the perfect marriage until one day in 1989 when it all came crashing down. The once traditional housewife murdered her ex-husband and his new wife. From the Los Angeles Times comes a new true crime podcast, It Was Simple. The Betty Broderick Murders, hosted by award-winning writer and reporter Pat Morrison. This is a case I've been low-key obsessed with since the day I realized I was a true crime fanatic. Like they mentioned in the podcast, it was the OJ case before there was an OJ. It was the murder that everyone knew about and everyone felt an emotional connection with. Whether it was because they kind of understood where Betty was coming from, or because they couldn't understand how anyone could be sympathetic to a woman who murdered two people in their own home. I tried to pace myself with this podcast, but I ripped through it like a bag of Fritos. Maybe it was the whole story of knowing what she gave up to make sure her husband was successful, and that even that couldn't make their marriage work, or hearing in her own voice her own words talk about what she did. Each episode, one, two, three, and four, got me more and more sucked in. Hear from new voices from the years surrounding the murders who spotlight all the critical and at times controversial points from family to divorce, insanity, powerlessness, and wealth. All the details that make this more than 30-year-old case still stand out even in our contemporary American society. Every episode will have you asking yourself, how would I react if my relationship ended like this? Is there anything that might drive me to murder? Join Pat in discovering why this 30-year-old case still gets us today. After 30 years, five bullets, two coffins, and one California prison inmate, why can't we look away from Betty Broderick? Every binge-worthy episode of It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders is available now, so download today from wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The two previously existing impressions were of a bloody boot print as if someone was standing in her blood facing the back door, and another impression of what looked like two bars that met together in the middle. Knowing she had likely been doing yoga on that green mat at some point that night, I thought about what in her house might make that impression. 
I looked up different at-home exercise equipment and found an ab assist machine. It's like a curved bar with a headrest that helps you do crunches on the floor. I asked her brother Dwayne if Egypt had one of those and he said that he had remembered seeing one there. As for the boot print, there was only one. No other prints leading up to it and none walking away from it, as if someone stepped in it and took off their shoe or hopped the rest of the way out of her house. We don't know who the boot print came from. It's possible it could be from a careless first responder. My immediate thought was that fire or EMS may have gotten on the scene first, and their first priority would have been checking to see if she was alive, so they may have stepped in the blood on accident. But contrary to misinformation on the internet, the fire department was not first on the scene. Police were. And of course, police officers still wear boots and would still want to check to see if she was alive, but nonetheless should and generally would know better than to step into a pile of blood at a murder scene. Regardless of all that, we go back to the fact that there's only one boot print. It's not like that boot stepped in the blood and backed away or stepped anywhere in the house where that blood transferred. It was one lone boot print. I know hearing about the impressions in the blood are probably a bit of a shocker for those of you who have been keeping up with her case, but that's not even the most shocking part. Not even close. When they rolled Egypt onto her right side, they found a shell casing. It was underneath her body. For lack of a better word, it was found under her butt. When a gun's fired, the shell casing releases and flies out of the right side of the weapon, falling onto the ground, or in this case, onto the carpet. This means that judging by where the shell casing was found, the person who fired it was probably standing with her back towards the back door and pointing the gun towards the front of the house when it was fired, which contradicts the entire positioning of Egypt's body. Judging by the position her body was found in, you would expect to find the shell casing somewhere to the right side of her head, north of her body, in the direction of the love seat or the mini fridge that she had next to it. Instead, it was found south of her body, on the opposite side of her entry wound, and underneath her. I know that's a lot to take in. I'll draw a diagram and put it in Egypt's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley to give you a better visual. Bottom line, the position she was in doesn't match the evidence of where she was shot from based on where the shell casing was found. All the crime scene photos I've seen are from the medical examiner's office and look to have been taken by one of their investigators between 1 a.m. and 1.32 a.m., roughly six hours after she was found. As I was going through them, I tried to look at things around the room that wouldn't necessarily seem to matter. The first thing I noticed in the beginning of the sequence of photos were those three baskets on the bench beside Egypt's back door. The two baskets furthest from the door were filled to the brim, one with what looks like a bag in it, the middle one with some kind of fake plant in it, but the one closest to the door, the one you'd assume would be used the most, looked empty. Until, in later photos, I noticed there's now a fake plant in the basket by the door that was previously empty, and the middle basket looks nearly empty now. Why would anyone be shifting contents of baskets at a crime scene? I would totally understand if they were emptying them, going through evidence, etc., but playing ring around the baskets just doesn't seem to make any sense. It could be nothing, but it's worth mentioning. In one of these reports, the Emmys investigator got a real close-up shot of Egypt's hands before they were untied, and pinched tightly in between her left pointer finger and thumb was a piece of hair. And let me tell you, she was holding on to it as tight as she possibly could.
this day, I couldn't tell you whether or not that hair's ever been tested. And if it has, it's been three years. And as far as Egypt's mother and brother know, they don't know the results. The police did take swabs from five of the bulbs on the entire strand of Christmas lights. Generally, one strand of lights is 100 bulbs. They took swabs of five of them. Naturally, all five swabs came back positive for Egypt and only Egypt's DNA. As for the other 95, we may never know. But if they were able to get that DNA back, what about the strand of hair? Was it ever collected? Was it ever tested? The light swabs were sent out and tested, so what about this strand of hair? I originally planned on going over her autopsy results and photos and tying them into this insane crime scene in this episode, but it's just as intricate as her crime scene is, and I want everyone to really soak in all the details of the crime scene before I add on the details of her autopsy, so that will have to wait for next week. But before we go, I wanted to address the elephant of interest in the room. We've talked about her boyfriend and her parents and her friend, but we haven't really mentioned Kenny in this episode, and frankly, it's because he's kind of accounted for. Kenny had recently gotten collarbone surgery and was in a 12-week recovery process. Anybody who knows anyone who's had a collarbone injury knows that it's incredibly painful and restricts your strength and range of motion. Knowing that 5'10 Egypt had to be overpowered and bound already makes this a little unlikely, but nonetheless not impossible. But Kenny was at a local bar called Lakeview Tavern with his friend Mike until 10 p.m. the night Egypt was killed. Granted, it's close to Egypt's house, but he was with a friend and at an establishment with other people. From what I understand, there was a video and receipt proving that he was there. And if that report of the 9.56 p.m. gunshot is true, then it couldn't have been Kenny. Kenny got home between 10.20 and 10.30 that night and proceeded to watch porn and Hulu on his phone, which he provided the information for. He also got a printout of his exact whereabouts from his phone, and him and his attorney offered it to police, and according to them, he was told that they didn't want it. I should also mention, Kenny didn't live alone. According to his sister, she was living with him at the time of Egypt's murder, and according to her, she has never been questioned. Which now begs the question, how did he ever become a person of interest in the first place? I read a part of the affidavit that was left with Kenny's mom when they searched his house in the early days of this investigation, and the only thing they seemed to have was that Kenny was upset at the Strawberry Festival, that he owned guns, one of which was the same caliber found under Egypt's body, but let me tell you, the caliber found at Egypt's crime scene is nothing rare, not even a little, and that he would have had the code to her apartment. But none of that really matters if all of his whereabouts are accounted for the night she was murdered. So now that her person of interest is kind of out, it begs the question, if Kenny didn't kill Egypt, then who did? If you know anything about the murder of Egypt Covington, please email egyptcovingtontips at yahoo.com. For all photos, diagrams, and maps pertaining to this case, check out Egypt's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just five dollars a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month – 
All your episodes are ad-free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. And I'll remind you, today is the first Monday of July, which means you have a bonus episode waiting for you. I'll be bringing you part three of Egypt's case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Mm -hmm.